everyone, it's your host here, Marcel. Last week, we hosted Kenyon Farrell for our initial exploration of the ideas of freedom, the prison industrial complex, and the intersection of HIV and incarceration. If that sounds interesting to you, then check out Kenyon in episode 8, part 1. And also, check out his content on KenyonFarrell.com. As we explore this idea of the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration, One of the pillars under which these systems operate is through the social implications of criminalization, as well as the isolation of individuals we deem criminals. This week, I brought into the room Jason Leiden, who has created an organization that works to connect us with incarcerated individuals on an interpersonal level. Before we get started, I wanted to also let you know that in the episode, there is brief mention of sexual assault and childhood sexual abuse. So take care of yourselves and please to exercise discretion when appropriate. Otherwise, it was a fascinating conversation. So sit back, enjoy, and I'll see you all at the end of the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Defining Equity, a show meant to center and celebrate folks living at the margins. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about LGBTQ mass incarceration and prison abolition. Queer and trans people of color intersect with the criminal justice system in a way that's very specific and disproportionate, and we want to discuss that. So today, we're joined by Jason Lydon, who serves as the National Director of Black and Pink, which is an open family of LGBTQ prisoners and free world allies who support one another. Black and Pink works specifically to bring on liberation and abolition to LGBTQ prisoners, and I'm super excited to learn more about them and to introduce you you all to the work. So without further ado, Jason, everyone, how are you doing? What's up? Doing good. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, of course. So just to get started, so folks kind of know a bit more about who you are, like, would you mind just like telling us a little bit about yourself? Like, obviously, we know your name, but you know, like where you live, your age, just kind of like that basic. Yeah, sure. So I'm 34 years old. I live in Boston, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. I grew up just south of Boston. So that's where I've been basically all my life. Awesome. Awesome. So before we dive into this conversation, I'd love to learn more about you, the person. So how about you just tell us a little bit about like who you were as a kid? You mentioned that you grew up in Boston, but like, what was that experience like? You know, your family, hobbies, things like that. Yeah, sure. So I grew up mostly on the South Shore of Boston near Plymouth. And I have a pretty big family. There's kind of four parents. My parents got divorced when I was pretty young, so Mm. I've had a stepmom and a stepdad as well. And then there's five of us kids. I have two stepsisters, a brother who came into our family when I was 11. He's 11. We're the same age. He was adopted when we were both 11. And I have one sister who I grew up with kind of the whole time. She's three years older than me. We share all the same family. Um, I came from a family that has complex aspects of being supportive about different things about me at different times. My mom and stepdad really growing up were very supportive and loving and caring and looking out for me. I came out when I was really young, when I was 12 years old. So that was had a significant impact on my family. I was like a little queer kind of gay boy activist in the sense of trying to start a gay straight alliance at my school, involved in kind of assimilationist basic gay politics of the late 90s. And so that was part of my life. And my dad and stepmom had a much harder time with that. They did their best that they could to be supportive. It was a challenge. But my family is great. And all of my siblings are married. And most of them have kids, have nieces and nephews Mm. that I see when I can. So that's a little bit about my family. 
Cool, cool. I know you mentioned that your dad's side of the family had a harder time with you coming out. Like, did you come out to them at the same time? Sort of. So I came out kind of twice. So I came out once when I was 12. And I came out to my mom. And then she told my dad. And... My mom was fine. She, you know, she was like, well, let's see what happens as you get older. Uh, mm-hmm. But she was never like negative about it. Just right. like, let's wait and see. Then at the same time, she also bought me like every gay book that ever existed. Uh, I was like, <laughs> here you go. <laughs> every book, here it comes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she was also like, I need to find other gay people for you to know. So, right. you know, she was doing, she was doing the best she could. And that was great. And my dad, I remember he took me out to pizza and was like, I was afraid of girls when I was your age. And I was like, okay. <laughs> what a- that was the end of that conversation. Well, um, that. <laughs> and then more so it was just kind of struggle in his family. And then I came out again on kind of the front page of the newspaper for this, like the Boston Globe. Because mm-hmm. I became like the poster boy for like gay kids in school, basically. Because I was mm-hmm. experiencing a lot of harassment and violence in school. And got involved in trying to like start a gay straight alliance, as I was saying. And then when I was on the front page of the news, then we had to have more conversation because I'm my cousins knew my grandparents and that went even less well and people weren't Mm -hmm. excited um yeah so it was just kind of a painful way of trying to stay connected to that family which is just I didn't. I didn't stay connected to them. Got you. Got you. Are you still connected with your moms? My mom, so, we're great. My dad you. and my and my stepmom, we're all great now too. What's interesting is they got eventually totally fine with my queerness and had much more problem with my politics. Mm, um, my okay. dad's a libertarian, and so for myself, as I was developing my political analysis, that mm. was what made him more angry than my sexual orientation, which for him, he was like, well, you can't control that, but you can control your terrible left-wing nut job ideas. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, there's that. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. And like growing up, did you have like any particular hobbies or? Uh, growing up, probably. I spent a lot of time in doing church things because my church community was where I was safest. I grew up as a Unitarian Universalist and mm-hmm. I came out at church. So that was actually the first place I came out was in my comprehensive sex ed. That was part of Sunday school. So jealous. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like learning like how to buy condoms and how to like have conversations about healthy sexuality and what masturbation is and all these mm-hmm. great things about like bodies and lives in my church basement as a, you know, kid really. And so that was really great. So that was where I really felt safest. So I did a ton of church stuff. And there wasn't a lot of hobbies. I played mm-hmm. soccer for a little while, but being gay, being out and gay, that there was mm-hmm. nothing possible about maintaining sports. I thought about wrestling and then mm-hmm. the wrestling coach. I remember telling somebody that if the other people on the wrestling team didn't keep the faggot off of the team, then he would shut the team down. So, wow. you know, those were the types of things that, so I avoided all that. And yeah, I was just kind of hung out with church people. That's where I felt best. That's real. That's real. Thank you for sharing that. So before we dive into this discussion, I like to do a little bit of like an icebreaker. So basically, I have in my hat three questions of which you can answer one or all of them, whatever makes you feel the most like (laughs) you. Also, question one, what was a dream that you used to have all the time? Question two, who was your childhood best friend? And question three, how would a high school teacher describe you? So question two... Really young childhood would be this kid, Sean Zagayski. Mm-hmm. I can't remember anyone's name in real life, like a regular day to day, but <laughs> his name is like etched in my head. We were best friends in like first, second, and third grade, I think. Then he got too cool for me, but uh, I thought he was like the coolest thing ever. Mm-hmm. So I remember being really good friends with him. And then high school 
teacher described me as a not particularly great student, but a dedicated person, I think would be kind of what I uh, love that. So before, you know, we get into talking about your specific prison abolition work, would you mind just kind of, I guess, painting a little bit of a backdrop of like what criminal justice and mass incarceration looks like in this country, especially with respect to queer and trans people of color? Sure. I mean, the United States is number one, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, number one in the sense that we incarcerate more people than anyone else in the world. That's become now, I think, especially in progressive and even liberal circles, common knowledge that Michelle Alexander really opened a lot of people's understanding, I would say more so white people's understandings to the way the criminal legal system is designed, how it functions. You know, she did a great job of, you know, this language of the new Jim Crow was Mm -hmm. a really catch way of getting people to be like, wait a minute, whoa, this is a huge system thing that's racialized. And having that to kind of grasp, I think was helpful, again, particularly for white liberals to begin to see what a big problem incarceration was in the United States and is. I think she also drives home some really great things about, you know, comparing us to like apartheid in South Africa and that we have more black people incarcerated in disproportionate numbers than they Mm -hmm. did in South Africa at the height of apartheid. Mm -hmm. Um, That has, I think, huge impacts on people, again, predominantly white people's understandings of this system. And so, you know, what we have is 2.3 million people in prison. We have 5 million more people on parole and probation. Mm. So we have a system that has been designed really just to keep black and brown people and indigenous people locked up Mm. and controlled by the state. And so LGBTQ folks are, of course, disproportionately affected by this because Mm. when we look at the intersections of oppression, always those with more marginalized identities are the ones being controlled and regulated by the state. Mm. And the state's regulation of black people in particular has always been gendered and sexualized in the sense of regulating people's sexual orientations and identities and expression Mm. from slavery till today. So our current existence of Our criminal legal system is simply a design of oppression. And Mm -hmm. so white supremacy being kind of the focus point of it, heterosexism and trans misogyny are absolutely key parts to Mm -hmm. continue its maintenance. So that's how we see criminalization of sex work, the reality of walking while trans, trans Mm -hmm. women of color in particular being profiled as sex workers, whether they are or not. We see the ways in which the drug trade gets criminalized. And we know that LGBTQ folks are much more likely to be involved in the drug trade. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that LGBTQ folks experience more family rejection, so it leads to homelessness, which has this huge disproportionate impact of incarceration. The Williams Institute recently put out a report that shows in particular for people in women's prisons, the disproportionate incarceration of black women who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or just somehow not straight identified is astronomically disproportionate, where they're saying as many as 40% of people who are incarcerated in women's prisons identify as LGB. So Mm. that's huge. That's an enormous number. And so what that's saying is that we need to be talking a lot of truth about what's happening with the intention targeting of queer and trans people of color against particularly black latino and indigenous people that is real that's real yeah it's, it's so funny you mentioned some of those like numbers and stats that i was familiar with but I did, that last piece i had no that's yeah, a new idea. survey I, report released. Wow. that is wow so 
switching gears a little bit, you provide that context. Of obviously, things are like very messed up. So tell me about like some of the work that you do at Black and Pink and, you know, just like the history of that organization, how you got it started, the goals for the organization, all of that. Yeah. So I started Black and Pink when I got out of prison, really to stay in touch with the people that I've been locked up with, that mm-hmm. lots of people looked out for me. So I wanted to figure out ways to look out for them. So that was in 2003 that I got out and it took mm-hmm. me a couple of years to really start the organization. But when I first got out, I turned to some of the more mainstream LGBT nonprofits like Lambda Legal, like the Human Rights Campaign, the LGBTQ Task Force, or at that time, the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, Mm -hmm. to really try to ask them what they were doing around prisons that I had just gotten out. I had experienced sexual assault by a prison guard. I had been held in a queer segregated cell in county jails in Georgia. And so I wanted to deal with that in some way. And a lot of what I got was a dismissal of, we're working on marriage right now. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not really our primary issue. That's more of a racial justice issue. I'm like, yes, racial justice is a queer and trans issue. Yes, right. it is a racial justice issue. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. That's the point. So, you know, the beginning of Black and Pink was really about just taking care of the people who took care of me. Right. Mm-hmm. That it was about writing letters, maintaining relationships, keeping connections that so often when people leave, they say, I'll, I'll keep in touch, but life is hard. And when you get out, life is complicated. And so mm-hmm. a lot of people don't and can't and are unable to really maintain those relationships. But due to the enormous number of other privileges I have, I was able to keep in touch and mm-hmm. send people money, look out for them. And then what started to happen was somebody would say, Oh, Jason's writing to me. I bet if you wrote to him, he'd write to you too. And so it mm-hmm. got to the point where more and more folks were writing with me. Began a partnership with an organization called Brothers Behind Bars that came out of the Radical Fairies and was just writing to a bunch of different people. And it got to be where I was like, wait a minute, I'm writing to too many people and I cannot maintain all these connections. And so more people got involved. Friends would come over for dinner and I would say, you can have this lovely, delicious dinner I made if you respond (laughs) to some of these letters. And so it was a nice little trick. And then people would respond to letters. We'd have dinner together. We'd talk about prisons and why they're terrible. And so that just kept growing. More people got involved to where we are today, which we are the largest ever network of LGBTQ and or HIV positive people in prison. We have 13,000 prisoner members Mm. uh, with members in every state across the U.S. We have nine chapters of Black and Pink in different cities, one in a rural area in southwest rural Ohio, where we have people just actively engaged in so many different levels. We have, of course, our pen pal program, which will always be the heart of who we are, and getting people on the outside to write to prisoners that too often people get involved. And again, particularly white liberal suburban folks will get involved in criminal justice reform in a sense of trying to save people. Mm -hmm. And we don't need anyone to save anybody ever. We need people unless they're in a burning house. And then we should have the firefighters. We should probably save them. Um, (laughs) But in terms of movement work, we're not trying to save people, right? Mm -hmm. We're trying to build leadership. We're trying to support folks with their own ideas of their own liberation. Mm -hmm. And so our responsibility is to align in movements of solidarity and struggle. And so I think this pen pal program is a way of making sure people have authentic relationships and connections with people behind the walls. And so along with that, we recognized that we would have and quickly did have more prisoners than we did people on the outside who wanted to write letters. And so we created a newsletter. The Mm -hmm. first one was a disaster because I laid it out and I have no skills like that. Um, (laughs) But other people thankfully got involved. And so Mm -hmm. we have this beautiful monthly publication that goes out. It's full of prisoner generated content 
content that gets attributed to all of our members with stories of survival and resistance, but also stories of harm and violence and people just shouting each other out, sharing strategies for how to get through things, sharing strategies on how to get hormones, strategies on making sure you're not being housed inappropriately based on your HIV status, people sharing stories of uh, how they maintain romantic relationships on the inside, just healthy, helpful stories about how to organize and survive while inside. And then we Mm -hmm. also have art and poetry and news articles that they might not get access to that are important things to know about queer and trans community, excuse me, or about political visions. Got you. Cool. So I'm just curious because it sounds like y'all really started from like very much like, oh, I'm just going to keep in touch with people that I met and like really expanded to provide a number of different services. Would you mind just like talking a bit to, I guess, some of the triumphs and challenges of black and pink, like getting it from like where it was to where it is now. And like, I know you kind of touched on that pushback you got from some organizations that didn't really prioritize it. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, like what some of those processes have been like? Sure, of course. I think some of the biggest triumphs have been watching our members get out and developing relationships with formerly incarcerated folks and supporting their leadership as they get involved in our decision-making process, as they get involved in different levels of the organization. That has been incredible. Other successes, I mean, the fact that we have chapters, right? It's not just Jason's personal pet project out of my living room. It is Mm -hmm. something that belongs to so many people that folks just keep taking it on. Just recently, there is a meshed in Chicago that decided they were going to create a project called the Black and Pink Crescent. So they're reaching out specifically mm. to LGBTQ Muslims and providing spiritual and loving support and developed a partnership with us to do that. That the work that we've done has given rise to people doing more work, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of our own projects, watching ourselves just grow is clearly a sign that we are doing something right. That mm-hmm. if people just keep wanting to get access to it is because they have something that they need, right? That they're finding in our publication, in our pen pal program, and the advocacy we're able to do for people. And then we released a report in 2015. It was the largest ever community-based grassroots survey of LGBTQ prisoners. Mm -hmm. And it was an amazing process. We had about a year-long process of designing the survey itself. It was a 133-question survey, which to be honest, if someone on the street asked you to fill out Mm -hmm. a 133-question survey, you'd laugh in their face. But on the inside, while prisoners don't often have access to a lot, they have access to a a lot of time. And so it wasn't actually a lot to ask people. And the survey itself was designed by our prisoner membership. So people mm. sent in questions and said what they wanted us to ask. That's awesome. We mm-hmm. compiled that all together, distributed it through the newspaper, gave some incentives for people to do the survey itself. We got 1,200 responses. Mm. Uh, and at that time, our newspaper was going out to just under 5,000 people. So that's a huge response rate. And so we had this great data set, which we then had mostly formerly incarcerated, but other volunteers do all the data entry. And then we did community-based kind of interpretation of the data, Mm -hmm. where we worked with an agency that came in and helped us dive into what were prisoners saying. So we released a report called Coming Out of Concrete Closets Mm -hmm. uh, with recommendations based on our interpretation of the data. And we just have a story here, right? A story that our members are constantly telling through their writing, that they're telling through their letters, that they're telling through their art. And we also had this incredible opportunity to bring together so many of those stories into one place. Right. Um, and so that 
document really guides our policy work, the efforts we're going to work on, and really tells a story about what's happening to LGBTQ people in prison. If we want to know, here is where people are telling us. Got you. I'm just curious, what are some of your policy efforts? Sure. Our biggest one is to end solitary confinement. That was Mm -hmm. abundantly clear, the most important thing that folks wanted us to work on in terms Mm -hmm. of an immediate reform. And we call those non-reformist reforms based on the work of Ruthie Wilson Gilmore or abolitionist reforms in the sense that it's an effort that we can engage in that takes something out of the system, a tool away from them that's causing harm without building the system up. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's not a tool that they can then use to cause more harm because we're taking it away from them. Right. So we engage in efforts such as that. About 85% of our members have spent time in solitary confinement, more than half for two years. And so that's outrageous. And solitary confinement is torture, according to the United Nations, after 15 days. Mm -hmm. And so for people to be spending years in solitary and about, I think it was 8% of our membership spent more than 10 years in solitary confinement. So we're torturing people all the time time in the United States in many ways, but in particular with solitary confinement. So we work on campaigns on a statewide basis Mm -hmm. to end solitary confinement in all of the U.S. prison system. And we support efforts in terms of policy work that will reduce the use or end the use of strip searches because Mm -hmm. strip searches themselves are a form of sexual assault, regardless of what the institution says. They'll say that it's about the security of the prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what we say is that whenever you force somebody to remove their clothes for somebody else to look at their naked body that Mm. you are sexually assaulting that person that if that was expected of people on the outside of prison people would riot right that that's a completely unacceptable thing to do but it's such a norm in terms of incarceration so we're working on efforts on kind of some local levels to reduce or end the practice of strip searching and at very minimum that transgender women who have asked us in particular, but transgender people more broadly, should be able to choose the gender of the person who's strip searching them. Too often, trans women in particular are telling us stories of having male guards strip searching them, and that feeling Mm -hmm. as an additional humiliation on top of the trauma of already having to be searched to begin with. Right. So those are a couple of the things we do. We have a lot of different kind of community-based local efforts. And then we also align ourselves with different federal policy work to change Mm -hmm. things that are happening at the Federal Bureau of Prisons, always aligning with people around stopping the enforcement of all of our immigration laws. So we'll Mm -hmm. align ourselves with people who are doing great work as often as we can. Got you, got you. Are there any particular organizations that like you want to give a shout out to that you... La Familia is Mm -hmm. an amazing organization that does phenomenal work around immigration. We love our friends at the Transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project in Mm -hmm. the Bay Area. Our friends in New Orleans at Breakout are three organizations that do amazing things. The Sylvia Rivera Law Project in New York City, Mm -hmm. Hearts on a Wire in Pennsylvania. And these are all folks who are just doing really important work. Uh, The Queer Detainee Empowerment Project in New York City. Mm -hmm. And the list is so extensive of people who are doing things that we admire their work, that we want to just always act in solidarity with the things that they're leading on. Got you. Awesome. Awesome. And where do you see... Black and Pink going in the future. So we're in a place of exciting transition right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm stepping down as national director. This mm-hmm. is an important process that we've been going through for a while. And so I'm excited to watch new leadership come in and help us shape the next few years. I will 
remain connected in terms of really helping with the fundraising and ensuring that we remain stable financially as an organization. I think that's an appropriate role for founders to play when they step down. But in terms of directing and leading and decision making, that won't be my role. But I think the organization as of right now is really headed in a direction of supporting prisoner organizing more, prisoner resistance more, and of figuring out ways of really building with our friends who are doing organizing work in Texas and Georgia in particular, really supporting Southern organizing. It's really important to us that we have 2,000 members, prisoner members in Texas. So Mm -hmm. we need to have stronger chapter work there. Right. And we are also really hoping to have some victories around solitary confinement. We're supporting bills for changes in Illinois, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. And we really need to see some wins. Yeah. Uh, And we're working hard on those. Got you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing all of that amazing detail about Black and Pink. Y'all are are great. I just, I love it. So switching gears, but not really. I'm thinking with a topic like this, talking Mm -hmm. about mass incarceration, talking about prison abolition, I can imagine that there might be just, you know, the way we are socialized to think about prison and like people who are involved in criminal justice, the way we socialize to think about cops and like how that differs when you look at race and all those beautiful Mm -hmm. things. I can imagine that there are folks who might have some, some initial pushback to some of the work. So I'd love to just kind of like talk, I guess, a bit more theoretically about certain concepts for Mm -hmm. folks who may be less familiar with this type of work so just like in general just based on like i guess how black and pink would define this or how you would define this personally like how would you describe prison abolition as a concept like how do you define that term absolutely i'd say prison abolition is both creative and destructive destructive of systems of violence and harm that exist Mm -hmm. so we do want to take things down we do want to free people from prison we do want to get rid of the carceral state as it exists. And it's also creative in the sense that we also want people to be accountable for harm that they've caused. And we want to create new transformative justice-based practices Mm -hmm. where people are authentically held accountable, not simply punished, uh, mm-hmm. but are actually transforming their behavior, are transforming themselves, are having access to the things that they need also to heal. And that we want to have a survivor-centered process around that. Because mm-hmm. what we have right now is ridiculous. We have yeah. a system that does not actually care about people who have been victimized. They mm-hmm. don't. They say the state cares, right? That when somebody has been victimized, then it becomes the state verse the person who is supposedly right. caused the harm, right? Mm-hmm. So the state takes on the identity of the person who's been victimized, but actually doesn't provide support, nurturing care, resources, healing mm-hmm. spaces that we don't have an actual survivor-centered system. Mm-hmm. And so we need to move to one that is, while also not demonizing people who cause harm, because right. every single one of us has harmed people. Mm-hmm. We've done so to different degrees, but we have all done it, and mm-hmm. we are all more than the worst thing we've ever done. And that's true for people in prison. That's true for people who are not in prison. And so abolition is this idea that we have the potential as a people to really create authentic spaces for community, for people to have their needs met, and for us to all be able to respond when bad things happen, when harm happens, without simply reacting with revenge with desires for punishment with Mm -hmm. desires to cause harm to those who have also caused harm and so abolition is both also our end goal right it's that idea of we can get to that society we can create that we can get there Mm -hmm. it's also our strategy for getting there so as i was talking earlier about abolitionist or non-reformist reforms it's also the ways in which we do work Um, Mm -hmm. so we could i would say as reformists we could dive into efforts that, for instance, 
we fight only for nonviolent people to get out of prison, right? And that we use language that says we're getting the safe people out of prison. Those people don't, quote, deserve to be in prison. Mm -hmm. So that's a reformist strategy in the sense that you're, sure, trying to get some people out. You're trying to reform the system. But you're actually strengthening it in many ways because you're saying some people deserve to be there. Right. We should torture some people. Mm -hmm. We should respond with the system to the worst of the worst, that type Mm -hmm. of thing. We as abolitionists would not engage in the type of work that throws anybody under the bus, that Mm -hmm. my liberation cannot be achieved by harming someone else. And so for an abolitionist strategy to exist, it needs to be one that is collaborative, that is intersectional, that is understanding that we must all get free together uh, Mm -hmm. and not at anybody else's expense. That's real. That is real. And so... I guess talk a little bit about some of the, I know you mentioned, um, you know, just alternatives to the carceral state that we have in place. Like, what do some of those models look like that, you know, center healing and redemption, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. An organization called Generation 5 that was Mm -hmm. based in the Bay Area is who we have really turned to at Black and Pink for analysis and for ideas and practice. Mm -hmm. They're an organization that was made up of adult survivors of child sexual abuse working to end child sexual abuse without police and prisons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they designed the transformative justice model, looking beyond restorative justice often in part because you can't restore justice where there was none in the first place. Right. <laughs> uh, and additionally, because so often restorative justice practices force people who have been victimized to be in the same space or often forgive the person who caused them harm. Yeah. And for myself as a survivor of sexual violence, that's not something I want to do. Mm-hmm. And that's not something I think a lot of people want to do is to do that process. But rather, there are other ways that people who have caused harm can be accountable, can take responsibility for what they've done without mm-hmm. having to re-traumatize people who are survivors, which I right. think sometimes unintentionally restorative justice practices can do. Mm-hmm. And so transformative justice practices rather, again, are that survivor-centered system that looks also at all of us who are bystanders. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest pieces that the state-based system that we have misses so much is that whenever violence occurs interpersonally, it happens in large part because society creates and allows the atmosphere to exist and creates a circumstance. Mm-hmm under which that violence and harm begins. Mm-hmm. And I think in particular, that's one of the things Generation 5 looks at very clearly because when we look at child sexual abuse, almost always other adults knew what was happening, but mm-hmm. didn't know what to do didn't know how to intervene or maybe the abusive partner was the person was the father and there was a mother in the house and the there are other children and the Mm -hmm. mother was thinking also about the other children and if i hold this person accountable will i lose the breadwinner of the home Mm -hmm. right that they don't intervene because they don't know what to do and there's no resources, right? Because our capitalist society is designed that if you leave, maybe you don't have a home. If you mm-hmm. don't have a home, then what's happening to your other kids? Will the state take your other kids? Mm-hmm. Right? That there's no actual support. There's no actual right. places often to turn. And so these models of transformative justice are saying we as communities, uh, without creating some like fetish that communities are all inherently great or awesome because mm-hmm. communities can be dysfunctional and cause pain. Yeah. But the idea is that Hopefully, we can create communities that will respond better, be trained on how to respond better, given the resources and ability and design new resources that are community specific, that are right for who you are as a people in Mm -hmm. the space, that 
you'll be able to respond to harm without relying on the police. So the job right. of transformative justice is not also to shame people who do rely on the police because they have no other options, right. but rather is to create a million other options that people can turn to that first. So there's another organization called Creative Interventions that was started in New York, mostly by women of color who are, again, trying to come up with solutions saying that intimate partner violence, especially as it affects women of color when relying on the police, simply actually creates more violence and harm. Mm-hmm. That bringing the police in actually harms the community more, harms survivors more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they need to design more resources instead that could actually be helpful, where, right. again, we're not disposing of people by law locking them up. And we're also not victimizing survivors more uh, Mm -hmm. by putting them through a system that actually devalues them. And so they designed so many tools. It's a creative intervention. They have a whole website. It's a million different tools that people can access and Mm -hmm. encourage folks to look at that. And so we look at those things as well. And I think really when we imagine what we can do differently, we also need to understand that the far majority of people who cause harm and violence don't get locked up. Mm-hmm. Right. Even the FBI will say 14 out of 15 people who rape someone won't spend a day in jail. Right. right? And we know that police are killing black people all the time and they're getting away with it. They're allowed. Mm-hmm. They're given medals for doing so. Mm-hmm. And so people are causing enormous violence in our communities and we live with them. We live next right. to them. They're in our families. And so we already are dealing with people who cause harm. So one of the things also with abolition is we don't have to wait for prisons to go away, for us to begin creating these transformative justice practices. We can do them right now. We can begin understanding how to be better bystanders and actually intervene in Mm -hmm. a way that is healthy and helpful and do what we need to do to practice. And recognizing that we're going to mess up a lot, Mm -hmm. that by trying and practicing doesn't mean we're going to do a perfect response to a particular experience of violence, that unfortunately, we're still learning. Right? right, that we're going to try something and it's going to be messy and people might get hurt and people might not get everything that they want and we might end up actually being more punishing than we intended to. But mm-hmm. it's about practicing and trying because we know the system we have is violent and racist and transmisogynistic and capitalist and it has its intentions mm-hmm. and we need to get away from that. And also designing and creating new things is hard. Yeah. That is real. So I can imagine that a lot of folks really struggle with, you know, this idea of dismantling the current prison industrial complex that we have, like dismantling this carceral state because of this idea of like safety. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, like prisons keep us safe because like, you know, they keep bad people away, quote unquote, mm-hmm. a heavy emphasis on quotes. Um, yeah. So I'm just curious, how like how do you typically respond to folks who try to defend the current carceral state under this guise of safety, which is brought on in theory by punishing other people? Yeah. One, I think, of course, people want to feel safe. Mm. I want to feel safe. Feeling safe is really important. And we all deserve to feel safe. And unfortunately, I think we've all been tricked, or not all of us, we've been tricked and socialized and taught that prisons will do that and that the state somehow is designed to protect people, but really is designed to protect white people and white wealth. And that's its intention. And so it will continue to do that. That's what it will do. That's its function. That's its design. And if we want authentic safety, we need to do something different. Additionally, unfortunately, prisons themselves are incredibly violent places and spaces. Mm. That sexual violence is rampant in prison. That assaults by staff are constant inside. Mm. That solitary confinement is itself torture, right? So even if somebody says, I feel safer with prisons, what they are not saying is that 
I feel safer knowing that other people are experiencing horrendous violence, Mm. that people I don't like, that I'm afraid of, that I'm scared of are being subjected to enormous harm. That makes me feel safe. Mm. And so we're not reducing violence. Prisons don't reduce violence at all. Anyone who tries to claim that is only looking at crime statistics, maybe, that don't include the harm that happens inside, mm-hmm. right? And don't include a definition of crime that says our planet is being destroyed by people with wealth who are happy mm-hmm. to not care about our planet, who are also destroying our neighborhoods with gentrification, right? That we have this very limited definition of what is violence and mm-hmm. what is safety. And so... Absolutely. I want everyone to feel safe. I want people to feel safe in their homes. I want people to feel safe in their communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want people to feel safe with their lovers and their friends. And that safety is not made more possible by prisons. It's only possibly being taken away by Mm -hmm. prisons because we're seeing so many families and communities and friendships and loving connections being broken apart by prisons. Prisons destroy families. Prisons lead to increased health inequities. Prisons mm-hmm. are creating so many more problems than they could ever possibly solve. Right. That's because they're not designed to solve problems. They're mm-hmm. designed to regulate and control, particularly black, brown, indigenous people, people who are poor, those that society considers to be disposable. That's what it's designed to do, and that's what it does. Yeah, that is real. So I guess, well, honestly, I keep saying to switch gears, but like not really switching gears. So I'm curious, like I come from a public health background. So just through your own analysis, how does your work contribute to, you know, this idea of health equity? Yeah, a bunch of different ways. I Mm -hmm. think one, we were talking earlier today, we were talking about HIV rates and Mm -hmm. how HIV is affected by incarceration. And there was, I think, and probably still is for many people, but this myth that HIV negative people are getting locked up and then are contracting HIV because of consensual sex or sexual violence that's happening inside, bringing that HIV back out into the community and infecting people in the community. So this is this common, I would say, myth that has actually been debunked by Mm -hmm. research. But instead... What we are seeing is, of course, there's a direct correlation between this mass incarceration of black men in particular and the increased rates of HIV. Because when we steal all of these potential sexual partners that exist in the community and we lock them up, take them away, Mm -hmm. then the community that is still there, there is a higher likelihood that people who are having sex in that community, because most folks have sex intra-racially and Mm intra-community, that they're going to be more likely to have sex with somebody who's HIV positive, and the person who's positive is more likely to have sex with more individuals, right? Mm -hmm. So we are taking away, stealing black men from a community, locking them up, and creating more risk mm-hmm. that the again the design is to increase the risk of black people contracting HIV and so then it's not about whether or not somebody has access or whether or not somebody is engaging in particular sexual acts mm-hmm. right that it's actually about the ways in which the system is designed for black people to not have access to a diversity of partners and that's why we have higher community viral loads of mm-hmm. HIV in black communities is in large part because we're seeing so many people stolen by prisons. And mm-hmm. so I would say our work around abolition is in part to keep communities healthier is to keep people in their communities. Mm-hmm. If we don't steal people and have them going away, it's not because they're contracting something terrible over here. It's because the community itself is struggling by not having its people there. Mm-hmm. And when you take community, when you're tearing communities apart, that is a destruction to its health. 
So I see, you know, when we talk about HIV specifically, I think that's an important part of the conversation to be had Mm -hmm. and a way of putting the blame, I think, appropriately of these higher rates of HIV transmission on the state and on police and on Mm -hmm. these systems that are actually profiting and designing a system where people are going to be harm, experience more harm in terms of their health. Additionally, I mean, in terms of prisons, we do work very specifically with people while they're locked up in terms of accessing care, right? Mm -hmm. So for trans women being able to access hormone replacement therapy or being Mm -hmm. able to access things that allow them to express their gender in the way that they want, that that Mm -hmm. plays into this public health aspect in the sense that when people are able to live more fully into their identity, that that decreases the rates of suicide. When you decrease some people's rates of suicide, that actually decreases the community's rate of suicide. Since we know mm-hmm. that when somebody sees somebody commit suicide or a friend or someone they care about commit suicide, then they actually have a higher likelihood of also committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, so simply providing basic care to somebody can mm-hmm. have a ripple effect significantly on the inside for mm-hmm. people to survive their incarceration, to actually hopefully one day be able to get back to their home wherever that mm-hmm. may be. Additionally, we're always fighting for people on the inside to have access to all care that they mm-hmm. need so that they can be healthy on the inside, that they're not struggling with their own health while they're doing time because it is an enclosed environment, right? And so then in terms Mm -hmm. of the public health within the prison, right, there's ways in which people have huge impact on each other since they're so close together Mm -hmm. uh, and just making sure that people have the care that they need. So we fight for things like trying to stop the practice where people have to pay for their medical care on the inside because mm-hmm. prisoners are entitled to medical care, but unfortunately they are allowed to be charged. And so mm-hmm. we've worked on campaigns, a couple of statewide efforts to stop prisoners from being charged for their health care. So I think that's some of it, but then by doing abolitionist organizing, that includes any of the work that we're doing around ensuring community health will require us to decrease the number of police because police simply make communities less healthy Mm -hmm. uh, because we also need to redirect financial resources, right? That Mm -hmm. if we defund the police, then we can fund all these other great things that Mm -hmm. actually bring health into the community. So I think any abolitionist work that's about defunding the carceral state apparatus will give more resources to systems that create health. Mm -hmm. Got you. That is real. Thank you for that. So, you know, this is an amazing conversation. I'm literally at the edge of my seat because I just I love this kind of just honest discussion about like, like alternatives to a system that honestly is so pervasive that a lot of us can't even really imagine Mm -hmm. what it would look like without which kind of leads into my next question. So, you know, we talk a lot about prison abolition. But like, I know you mentioned earlier that like, the carceral state doesn't necessarily have to be gone for us to be doing this work. But Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like, in like an imagination sense or what have you, like what does that world look like where like the carceral state is just no longer there and that all of these transformative justice practices are in place? Like what does that look yeah. like in your eyes? I mean, I think in order for the carceral state to truly go away, mm-hmm. we will have seen the dismantling of white supremacy because mm-hmm. I think white supremacy is a big part of what keeps it up. So mm-hmm. in order for it to be taken down, we need to dismantle white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Additionally, I do think capitalism will have to go away. That we'll have mm-hmm. to dismantle that. If we're going to actually see this imaginary world, it's going to be radically different than the one Mm -hmm. we live in. Because the carceral state, I think, is a tool that's so essential to maintain all of these other systems of oppression. Because Mm -hmm. it 
is able to function to keep people in line. It's able to function to suppress dissent. It functions to maintain racial caste systems, mm-hmm. right? And that if we start to take those things away, then it serves no purpose, mm-hmm. right? Because its purpose, again, is not to actually reduce harm, is to maintain these systems of violence and control. And so at the same time, if we don't get rid of those systems, we're not getting rid of the carceral state because right. it is requirement for the maintenance of those systems. So I think imagining that world, that's science fiction, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and science fiction is important. I think there are amazing people, Adrian Marie Brown and others who have created this book. Walida and Marisha is one mm-hmm. of them. This anthology called Octavia's Brood mm-hmm. that is imaginative visionary fiction where they are looking at creating worlds where we are freer from these systems of violence where Mm -hmm. we're able to tell stories differently. And so I think abolition is imaginative. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And in terms of imagining that long-term piece, Mm -hmm. that can be anything we want where we have equitable distribution of resources that we can only imagine that. And that's only fiction because we haven't seen it. We haven't experienced it on a large scale. We may have all experienced it in small scales. Maybe we've seen it in our families. Maybe we've seen it in our friend groups. But imagining it on like a national or global level is a big imagination. It's a, Mm. you know, opportunity for us to play with fiction, I think is really healthy. For me, that's things like comic books. I love reading comic books. And so I like to imagine, sure, in our visionary world where there aren't prisons, maybe there are also mutants and it's awesome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And that's okay as part of our fiction for being able to imagine things. It's important maybe to break away from the world that we have right now to try to practice those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm excited for what that world might look like. Even if I'm not around to see it, I will continue to fight to make it so that somebody will get to see that world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that when it does get here my belief is that we need to be in a constant state of revolution and Mm -hmm. so i assume that once it kind of happens there's going to be giant flaws and more people are going to need Mm -hmm. to critique it and say wait there's this still oppression that's happening we need to deal with this aspect of it that's causing still so much harm around this identity or this experience and i'm thankful for people's brilliance that exists now and that will exist much later from now who will be so creative to have real true responses to that that is real also i definitely need to check out this octavia's brood there we go okay i absolutely need to read that because that is just i yeah honestly like i think the combination of imagination and social justice is one that i feel like folks are more recently kind of talking about Mm -hmm. but i think that like fiction and like you know how we paint these stories like not only from the perspective of the person crafting the story but like for those consuming it i just think that it can it just paints so many realities and like honestly even in that process of making this quote-unquote like imaginary world like i mean you can uncover things that can absolutely be replicated in real time so i think that that's amazing and i'm going to definitely check that out for sure So thank you for explaining a bit more about what prison abolition is and like what all of this entails. So now I just kind of want to just like talk to you more like, again, sort of like similar to the beginning of the conversation, just kind of like person to person. Sure. You know, you're involved in a lot of 
very much like activist grassroots work. I'm just curious, like, what do you do outside of your work? Like, how do you self care? Like, who's Jason outside of the black and pink hats? I don't know that I exist like outside of black and pink. I feel Mm -hmm. like it's often when we talk about self care, it's something that we do away from our Mm -hmm. lives. And I feel like one of the things that's really important to me is that the work I do is self-care in the Mm. sense that we need to destroy all of these systems in order for myself to be liberated. So one, I don't want to divorce um, the work from self-care. That said, I do also need to escape like I think everybody Mm. does. (laughs) And into practices that I think can be a distraction when I need distractions or when I'm feeling hopeless that I can just kind of take a break. And so movies, I mean, going to movies is essential to my life. Watching as many of them as possible mm-hmm. is a really nice distraction for me and a break from things being really terrible and horrible. Reading comic books mm-hmm. is something that I'm really into. I made a New Year's resolution from 2015 to 2016 to like re-get into comic books like I was as a teenager. And it's mm-hmm. been an amazing addition to my life. Reading the Black Panther comics, reading Ms. Marvel comics, reading the new X-Men comics has just been so fun and really exciting. And just again, a nice little break into an imaginary world where we can do things totally different. And then for me, when we think about self-care, one of the things I also am very interested in is how we do community care Mm -hmm. and how we get away from, for lack of a better word, like the neoliberal aspects of what seems to be taking over self-care. Like you have to go do yoga and pay Mm -hmm. for a class in order for you very individually to be more cared for, (laughs) where I feel like we end up creating these ideas that self-care is something you do alone, is something Mm -hmm. that you do pay for, and is something that Yeah, it's just very divorced from our work. And so Mm -hmm. one of my dreams for us all is that we are doing more community care. And so I try to integrate that into the work that I do. So for instance, at our national gathering for Black and Pink coming up in August in Chicago, we're going to have uh, acupuncture, massage, and these, you know, very individual practices, but as part of our gathering, that in order for you to fully participate in this place of coming together, we integrate healing into our work. Mm -hmm. That your workshop about how to do court support is very important to do, but so too is getting a massage. Mm -hmm. Because to do this work, our bodies need to be healed. And that's part of your responsibility to our community, because we are providing that healing. We are responsible for ensuring that's there so that you can be sustained in this work. Mm -hmm. Got you, got you. Awesome. I'm curious. Again, sort of just like diving into more about like you, the person. What's something that you wish more people knew about you? Um, uh, That's a tough question. I think Mm -hmm. that my faith is really important to me. Mm -hmm. That it's not secondary. That it is kind of central to who I am. I I talk about faith and religion often in the things that I talk about, about prison abolition or that I am an abolitionist because of my faith as a Unitarian Universalist, that my understanding in universalism, universal salvation in the sense that after death, I don't believe there is hell. I believe whatever happens after we die is good. And I also believe that no divine being, whether that's God or our collective existence, would want us Mm -hmm. to be punished on earth now either. That I Mm -hmm. don't believe there's anything salvific about punishment. And that theology shapes who I am and the work I want to do. And so I feel like that's one of the things that in a secular movement, I think I downplay. Mm -hmm. But it is central to everything that I do is simply believing that 
my understanding of the divine is one that does not allow this harm to be seen as healing or just. Right. So interesting. Wow. Huh. And just looking back on who you were, like as a child, as a teenager, like, do you think that, do you think that the person you are now, the work that you're doing now, the way you think, et cetera, is sort of in line with who you thought that person would be? In some ways, I think, Mm -hmm. for sure. I knew I wanted to be a minister when I was Mm -hmm. seven. At that time, I was part of my family was Christian, and so I thought I would be a Christian minister. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unitarian Universalism, while some people are Christian, were not a Christian faith, Mm -hmm. and I myself don't consider myself Christian. So that is a little different than my little self thought. Mm -hmm. But in terms of actually the ministry that I do and the ways that I operate in the world, I think that is pretty consistent with what little Jason would have imagined. And then I think in terms of my 12-year-old self, um... I in I was really sad then. Mm. I was really uh depressed and struggling that I had no friends, that things were just hard. And so mm. people would always say, Well, when you're an adult, things will be better. Not like in a it gets better nonsense kind of way. <laughs> uh but more so in a way of like telling me that I was too old for my age in the sense mm. that I didn't have friends, not because I was gay, but because I was too sensitive or something Mm. like that. And I hope that my little self would be happy about the fact that I have a lot of friends. I have Mm. people I love very much that I'm deeply committed to without whom I would not be anything. That it is through relationships with others that I have been able to know anything, Mm. right? And be engaged in this work that my wisdom, my experience is based on being in relationship with other people and mm-hmm. listening to them and being connected with them. And so I think my little self would be happy that I got friends mm-hmm. and that um, I fell in love a few times, right? That mm-hmm. that's happened and that I've gotten to figure out what like queer sexuality looks like and means in a very physical and loving way. Mm-hmm. Um And then I've been a change agent as I hope to be or Mm. as I try to be in the world. And that was something that was really important to me. Then trying to figure out how to do justice. I didn't always know what that looked like. I did at that time kind of a lot of assimilationist kind of gay politic as a white teen in the South Shore of Massachusetts. And so I hope that myself, as I grew older, learned more about politics, was happy. I think my little self would be happy that I got smarter, I guess, Mm -hmm. and developed a better analysis of the world. Got you. Is there anything in particular you would say to that little version of yourself? Um, Just to keep going, stick it through. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's hard to imagine what were the things I needed to hear exactly back Mm -hmm. then. But just to just keep going, Mm -hmm. I think is, I'm really glad that I did keep going. Um, Actually, I think one thing I would say is you don't need to be a martyr that I believed very deeply that the best way that I could make change uh, would be to die. Uh, Mm. That I was in seventh grade when Matthew Shepard was killed. And uh, there was a kid on the bus who said, I heard about Matthew Shepard. Too bad it wasn't you. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, that is too bad. Maybe that would have had a real impact that if Mm. it was me, maybe that would lead to more change. Mm. Um, And so I got kind of 
engrossed in this idea of a martyr mm. narrative. And I think that's something that my early Christian teachings taught me, right? That Jesus mm. was killed and that's what saved people. And I, I think mm. that's dangerous theology. Um, I think that rather it was about his ministry that was useful for people. And I think that's something my little or self needed to know is that dying or being a being a sacrifice is not actually going to be what makes change and that it's just mm-hmm. about doing the work trudging through and knowing that there's more to do the next day got you that is real well thank you so much for all of this honestly this is just such a riveting and like amazing and very personal conversation so i just want to thank you for you know holding space and providing you know your experience your truth all of that to the show because i certainly i yeah Thank you so much for honestly all of this. Are there any remaining words or just any ideas that you want to like share with folks before we just, head out? If you don't have a pen pal, if you're not writing to somebody in prison, fix that. There's mm-hmm. no reason for anyone on the outside of prison not to be writing to prisoners. At our website, blackandpink.org, you can get a pen pal right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, get one. That's an important part of living in the world right now is to make sure that people on the inside know they're cared for and not forgotten. And so mm-hmm. I think it's the responsibility of all of us those listening right now. If you're not writing to somebody inside, you can change that. Sounds good. So y'all get on it, myself included. I will certainly get on that as well. Um, But yes, thank you again so, so, so much for this amazing conversation. And yeah, I, there's a lot of, a lot of comic books I need to read, a lot of stuff (laughs) I need to do post this episode. But honestly, thank you so much for- My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I'll see y'all next week. you all enjoyed Jason's expertise and imagination during this episode. Such a critical piece of activism that often is excluded from the conversation is imagination. Imagination serving as a basis to challenge ourselves as a society to create a more just and inclusive place that we ourselves have never known. So just as our current world was human in its creation, it can be just as human in its reimagination. So I want to thank Jason personally for bringing that much-needed insight into this space. As always, if you have any questions or thoughts on the episode, feel free to get in touch with us at definingequity at gmail.com. Next time, we'll be hosting the season finale of Defining Equity with a conversation about mental health and self-care. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.